Welcome to Truest Blood, the official True Blood podcast. I'm Kristen Bauer. And I'm Deborah Ann Wool. And you've been invited in. I want to do bad things with you. Welcome back to Truest Blood, where we sink our fangs into the series episode by episode. Episode 104, Deb. We did it, Rick. And I love the title that you came up with for this, Deb, <laughs> The Highest Form of Humor. Yep, it's all due to Bill. Yeah, it's very punny. We're going to get yeah. into that because it is so funny. <laughs> yuck, yuck. Trubies, welcome back. Today we are discussing the episode Escape from Dragon House. This is written by Brian Buckner and directed by Michael Lehman. Yep, yep. In this episode, we're going to talk about uh, the punniest bar in Shreveport, (laughs) Fangtasia, and meet two of our fan favorite bloodsuckers. Aww. Wonder who they are. Shucks. We'll also be speaking with uh, Suzuki Ingerslev who's the production Mm -hmm. designer for the show. For all seven seasons. She's so incredible. I can't wait, wait, wait to talk to her. Yeah. But first, this week on True Blood. Help! Somebody please! And we're back in Dawn's bedroom where Sookie has just found Dawn deader than a doornail. Jason stumbles in looking to make up, but instead finds himself arrested yet again on suspicion of murder. With Dawn, I don't even think I might have done it, so I know I didn't. Only this time he has a vial of illegal V-juice in his pocket, which he promptly consumes in a panic. Unfortunately, it takes effect mid-interrogation, leaving Jason somewhere between a rock and a hard-on. Luckily, Tara comes down to the station and manages to get Jason off the hook for now. But Jason's other problem just keeps growing until finally Tara diagnoses him with a hefty case of priapism. You're not the first vain ass body conscious ex-jock to overdo the V and wind up with an acute case of priapism. Pri what? Priapism. Now lift the ribeye and let me see what we're dealing with. She takes him directly to the hospital, where he eventually finds relief at the end of a very long needle. Meanwhile, Sookie, looking to clear her brother's name, asks Bill to take her to Fangtasia, a vampire bar in Shreveport, to see if she can get any information. This feels a little bit like what vampire bar would look like if it were a ride at Disney World. They are met at the bar by the driest bouncer south of the Mason-Dixon, Pamela Swinford de Beaufort. While Sookie catches the eye of Eric Northman, the 1,000-year-old Viking vampire and owner of Fantasia. Oh my god, he's so powerful, so beautiful. The closer I step, the more beautiful he gets. You can do this. Just walk. But just as Sookie starts to get some answers, the bar is raided by the police. Eric ushers them out the back, and they manage to escape by the skin of their teeth. The drive home is uncomfortable, to say the least, and it doesn't help that the evening ends with Bill having to glamour a cop. But nothing is stranger than Sam Merlot letting himself into Dawn's house to sniff and writhe in her sheets. Wow. So first of all, I think we can't really move into this. There's so much to talk about with this Mm. one episode. But first of all, we have to address that ending. We have to address that 
what WTF ending, ending. with Sam. I think it, it really threw a lot of people and it's so smart. It's so because smart. I think intentionally up to this point, Sam's been a little one note. He's been a little yeah. just the guy who loves Sookie. And now we're like, ooh. Yeah, we're thinking he's, he's hiding super something. normal. Yeah. And no Most normal guy. No. So it's like, is he the murderer? Is they're definitely playing with that. Yeah. Right? What's up with the I mean, when he puts the glove in his pocket, <laughs> that was a great little moment. Yep, yep. And then but the yeah, writhing in the sheets. Yeah, sniffing her pillow. It's you know, it's all these really wonderful little clues for later. But of course, unless you're a fan of the books, you would have uh, no way of guessing. <laughs> no way. The uh, the unforgettable plot line that is about to <laughs> about to uh, come up. It's a punny episode. It's a punny episode. We'll start off right with that one. Dog on it. She's not going to stop. I'm not going to stop. You're unstoppable. The other kind of uh, crazy uh, storyline for this particular episode is Jason and his uh, his priapism. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Uh, Yeah. His best friend is is injured. (laughs) The only the only person he cares about his penis. Yes. I think he even calls it his baby, doesn't he? Oh, I laugh so hard. Oh, it's too funny. He had more emotions about that than Don dying. He did. That is very true. Well, and so here's an interesting BTS. So our our writer, uh, Brian Buckner, at the time that he was writing this episode and putting it together, his wife was pregnant. And I think he actually had to leave set to go be with his wife while they, you know, while she was giving birth. Yeah. And so I think he wrote this episode, <laughs> which ends with Jason on his back doing deep breathing while he holds Tara's hand and a doctor reaches between his legs as his own sort of (laughs) twisted parody on male birth. Um, uh, I think, you know, it was on his mind at the time. Yes. And, and is this a good place to mention that Brian Buckner, (laughs) the writer, yes, the director, Michael Lehman. So Michael Lehman is a specialist. He's a PhD in puns. He is. He, he can't stop himself. They're so good and so subtle sometimes that it takes me a minute before I realize that he's he's made one. But yes. he just kind of sits there and stares at you until you're like, <laughs> oh, my God, I got it. That's what I was going to say. You only know a pun happened because there's this awkward pause where he stands there <laughs> looking like a kid that just got told he's going to get ice cream later. Yes, yes, exactly. And Brian Buckner hates them more than anything. <laughs> Well, so a little background on on Bucky, as we know him. Um, He uh, wrote for Friends for many, many years. And I think sometimes when you're coming out of situational comedy into a, you know, high drama soap opera kind of show, um, Brian was probably, Bucky was probably trying to uh, switch things up and find new ways to be funny. And so it was probably a resistance there. So it was a real battle of wits on that set. It was, it was. And you know, Bucky is so amazing. I yeah. I have this feeling that a lot of Pam's great lines <laughs> came Bucky's. from Bucky. You know, in later years, which we'll get into. Bucky has an inner Pam. He has an inner Pam because he became showrunner mm-hmm. and all the a lot of my great lines. At a certain point I would go to the writers and say thank you. And they would often say that's a Bucky polish. Oh, interesting. So Bucky really 
I have a special fondness for Bucky. Bucky gave Pam such incredible lines. And you have a masterful zinger, even in this very first episode. (laughs) How do you know my name? I never forget a pretty face. You're in my vault. Great. That's just great. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Who knew that that would be like the fan site, the amazing fan site, The Vault, with Shad and Lynn, who we're going to be interviewing. They have an incredible story. They were so supportive and wonderful. They were. But yeah, again, I mean, you know, we're saying wonderful things, obviously, about the writer and the director, because you have to ground this this Mm. ridiculous of a storyline. You have to ground it. And, you know, I give credit to Bucky for that, as well as Michael. And God damn it, again, Ryan. Ryan. I mean, he must have read that episode and gone, had his own WTF, right? Yes. Because... It must just seem so impossible uh, and and exposing in so many ways. And he commits to it 100%. Yes. He grounds it. It's funny, but it's also terrifying. Yes. And and I think in a way, you know, we've only seen Jason in kind of one light as kind of a dumb horn dog mm-hmm. kind of space. Mm-hmm. And then teaming him up with Tara, who is really his only ally. She stands yes. up for him. She goes down to the police station and lawyers yeah. for him. And there's that beautiful flashback to where he stood up yes. for her when she was little. Yeah, we finally understand this affection she has for him because it's certainly for the first few episodes, we're going, why does she like him so much? Yeah. And we kind of start to see it now. We start to see it. She says he's a good person. Yeah. Yeah, that's an incredible scene in the police station. Yeah. School is just for white people looking for other white people to read to them. I figure I save my money and read to myself. <laughs> She's so funny. It's it's a great line and Regina yes. delivers it perfectly. And it, it just goes to show her own intelligence and yes. her independence. And that, you know, Jason really needs someone like that in his life. <laughs> I know he really does. She's fiercely loyal. Yeah. And um You know, he had in the commentary, they mentioned that they did have like three Mm -hmm. penises made for that. You know, even one that was animatronic, I think, didn't it? Yes. It was able to move. It didn't end up working, I think. I think the only CGI involved in the priapism is that shot under the desk where you actually see his penis move and grow in his pants. And that was the only thing they couldn't do with an actual prosthetic. Um but yes, you know, I think, uh, you know, it's one of those things in movie magic where someone prop master walks out with a tray full of <laughs> penises and yeah. says, hey, which one do you want to use for this? And the actor sells it, makes it real. Yeah. yeah. I just love the things that we hear on the set and know about in our lives now because of True Blood, like priapism. Yes. I would, I would have gone my whole life and never heard that word. It's an interesting direction to go with Jason's character. You know, his whole identity and his pride in himself revolves around his, you know, his sexual prowess. Right. So to to take that away, not only is it weaken him physically, but it's a you know, it wounds his identity in a certain way. And and again, I think by the end of this episode, we see Jason through Tara's eyes a bit more. Rather than the towns or sookies. uh, And we see what she sees in him and that really she's the only one with an open enough heart to see that. Yeah. She's known him a long time. But most importantly, this episode, we head to Fantasia, finally. 
Yay! Fangtasia. Fangtasia? You have to remember that most vampires are very old. Puns used to be the highest form of humor. <laughs> it is this, it's still this wonderful mix of like cool vampires and, you know, sort of dorkiness. You know? It is. And I was like, wait, that's a terrible pun. I had to sit there and think about <laughs> fate. What is it even a pun of? And then I'm like, wait, Fantasia or the movie. And then you yeah. explained to me that it actually is a word that has a meaning, of course. <laughs> but I was thinking that's not a good pun. Do you think Eric or Pam came up with it? That is a very good question. And <laughs> hilariously, I never asked myself that question. <laughs> it's amazing how little I have asked myself to play this character. I, I kind of would put it on Pam if it was me. I mean, I think, yeah, because I think it's a great pun if it's, it's a great dry. Pun. If you right. try to sell it, it's bad. But if you let it just kind of sit there, it's kind of great. It's so great. I, yeah, I, I give it to Pam, I think. All right, I'll take it since it's great. <laughs> I mean, it is Fangtasia. It it's is. unbelievable. And we have to give it to Charlene, of course, but but then I'll well, take yes. it. But then it's all Kristen and Pam's. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. So, yeah. So this is your first episode, Kristen. You are finally oh on the show. The world gets to meet Pam, who becomes such a fan favorite over the years for many good reasons. Who knew? Who I did not know. Really? Oh, no. It was so crazy. Because I, I'm thinking back on it and want to make this like as efficient as possible, but it was just the <laughs> craziest sequence of events because I had auditioned for it uh-huh. probably a month before. And it was Alan, another female producer that was just there for the first season, and casting, Junie and Libby, mm-hmm. the amazing Junie and Libby. And I there was no real scene, right? So they just cut together snarky Pam lines on like one page. You just did a stand-up routine, essentially. I did a stand-up you know, routine. One-liner stand-up routine. Exactly. And I just tried to think of the, of course, driest, <laughs> most intimidating way to say these lines. And... Nothing happened in the room that gave me an indication of anything one way or the other. They videotaped it. And Uh then I have this wonderful protection mechanism after years of pain and suffering in this industry where (laughs) I'm pretty able to forget about the audition. Even though when I heard HBO, Alan Ball, Vampires, I was like, I told my manager literally, stop talking, I'm in. Any more that you tell me will make me nervous. It was just a guest star possible recurring at that point. So three weeks later, I get a call. They want me to come back in. There's no more people in the room. They just want me to do the same lines for the same two people. And I say, why? I'm on video. So I know I did something right. And I know they're unsure. Right. So all I can do is the same thing. I wore the same outfit. I did it again, and then I got on a plane, went to the Philippines for a month. So I guess by the time I'm filming, it's been a couple months actually, mm-hmm. because there was the strike. You had to leave the country mm-hmm. to work. So I go to do some silly movie in the Philippines, and I get a text from, well, actually the producer got a text, and she said to me, we have to get you back. The day you finish filming, you've got to go straight <gasps> to the airport 
because you start on something else. And Uh. I'm I'm like, well, I haven't heard from my manager. What is it? And she goes, it's true blood. (laughs) And I said, I don't remember which one that was. Oh my goodness. And she says, let me look if there's anything here. She's scrolling and she says, oh, it's um, HBO. And I go, oh yeah, cool. I wanted that one. So (laughs) now I'm on the correct time zone for the Philippines by this point. Right, right. So I work all day, go to the set, go to the airport, mm-hmm. get in a plane, fly all night. Fly halfway across the world, yeah. Literally, 17-hour <laughs> flight, and then get off the plane and go straight to Master's FX for my fang fitting. Yep, because you need them right away. Need them right away. Then I go to my wardrobe fitting with the wonderful, incredible Audrey Fisher then I might have gotten to go home for the night and sleep nothing <laughs> because I'm on the wrong time zone. Right. Then drive down to Long Beach to Fantasia and we start filming. So I do the vault line. We're in the club. And then it gets to be like two, three in the morning and we've got to fly down the alley. <laughs> okay. Fly with, I'm doing the quotes, air yes, quotes. With the quotes. Right. So I don't know these people. I don't know Anna, Stephen, Alex. I remember when he said that Swedish line, I was so tired. (laughs) And he and I were sort of in our corners, like trying to figure out what we're doing with our characters. I was trying to stay awake. (sighs) And that corset was longer than the crease where your leg meets your body, the hip crease. So I couldn't sit down. I had it's to sort of keeping you up at this point. Uh, yeah, I'm lean. I'm like, <laughs> this is why they had leaning boards, right? right. So I am freaking delirious. It, I'm, it, it, I'm so tired. It's painful. And I remember saying to Alex when he said that line, and they told me how to say my line back. <laughs> I said, "Are you speaking Cambodian?" And he went, "No." <laughs> and I thought. I don't think he's going to be fun to work with if I come back on the show. I was like, I don't think we're going to like each other. And then I go after dinner. Um, Anna had said to me when she saw us going to dinner at two in the morning, she said, don't eat. And I was like, huh, why? She's done a lot of period pieces. Well, I ate. So they loosened my corset and I ate. This is a bad idea. So I go and I fall asleep. I wake mm. up to them knocking on my honey wagon. I'm in the freaking <laughs> honey wagon, which to actors, you know what that is. It's like, it's your, not good. Your dressing room on wheels. Yeah. Yeah. Your dressing shoe box on wheels. So I sit up and I'm like, where am I? Because I'm looking around and it's not my trailer in the Philippines. Right. So I don't know where I am. <laughs> and... The set dresser opened the door. She goes, it's time to lace you up. And I don't know what my face did, but she said, I'll come back in five. Oh. She did. Lacing me up was excruciating. They take me into the alley, and Michael Lehman is showing me how we're going to fly. And it's a square piece of wood, plywood, that someone has drilled wheels into each corner. It's a, it's a skateboard is what yeah, it is. Yeah, it's a square skateboard. <laughs> and there's a rope attached to the front and a rope <laughs> attached to the back. And they're telling me that Alex and I are going to ride this thing down the alley. Oh, and I'm looking goodness. at the alley 
and I hear Anna. Because <laughs> oh, this is the moment that started the seven years of friendship. I yeah. hear her big, gorgeous laugh. And I look towards the laugh. And she takes my hand and she says, you should see your face. Because <laughs> I was like, is this a fucking college movie? Like, that's not, uh, we're not going to look like we're flying. <laughs> so I'm in heels. So I say, can yeah. I have some sort of flat shoes? So they bring the only flat shoes they had were these enormous white sneakers and like a size 11. <laughs> So that's what I'm wearing on my feet. In your stand. corset and pencil skirt. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And we do the first take. Well, of course, when they start pulling the rope, I remember Alex and I were standing there on the the piece of wood. And I'm looking around and looking at the ground. And I'm and I said, I just wish, and I don't know what I wish, but Alex <laughs> said there wasn't so much slack in that rope. Because how are we going to stop? So then one grip is just pulling as we're standing there and we're like, whoop, whoop, whoop. And we're, we're, right, right? you can't balance and the the alley isn't smooth. So then (laughs) the other thing that was funny was that it's the first time that Steven has to swoop up Anna. Yes. Right. And he's superhuman and run carrying another human. Right. You know how hard that is? So what Well and also Steven is not as superhuman as Bill. So right. you have to make you have to look really smooth while doing something really difficult. And I think yes. Alex had a line. He had to jump on that oh skateboard God. and deliver a line in some sort of cool Viking he way had as to he was told. Look backwards. Yeah. And say his line. And his wig, because they they thought, <laughs> well, how way. do we sell this motion? Because after every take, everyone would burst out laughing. Yes. And Michael said, we've got to figure out how to make it look like you two are flying. And Alex starts flapping his arms. I mean, we couldn't <laughs> stop laughing. And then Aunt, Aunt, I hear Stephen behind us going, oh, 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 oh. And, and Anna's going, can you please stop making that sound? I, like I weigh 150 pounds or something. So then, no. so then, um, they they get a grip with a fan plugged in on an extension oh cord goodness. who's running backwards to try to make right. it look like the wig is moving. So every time Alex turns to deliver the line, he gets hair in his mouth. Oh. The whole thing was a complete shit show. And they just edited it down to like yeah, a one and seconds. a half seconds. But from that moment forward, we were all friends. Yeah. Because you go through something like that. And I think it's, it's you know, it's cool to be able to mention and to tell people that like so much of what you see, especially on True Blood, is practical. It yes. is that. It's just yes. big, strong grips on other ends of ropes pulling you around. It's it's not as much CGI and sort of yes. mechanics as you'd think. It's really, you know, an old uh, Rube Goldberg machine where the book yes. hits the bowling ball and the bowling ball rolls in the bucket, which rises. I mean, that's essentially what a movie set is. That's uh, exactly it's, it. It's hilarious and it's fun and it can be a little scary. That's it. Uh, but somehow you all work together and figure it out. And you laugh so much. Yeah. You know, and I think about what I miss most, I miss laughing. Yeah. And you don't, you do have that on CGI shows, but not to mm-hmm. the same extent. And it's really a choice 
by HBO to spend the money and the time because it's time. Yeah. yeah. And that's expensive. Yeah. And so I'm just so grateful. If that had been CGI, we could imagine some sliding door where none of us bonded that evening. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. And we would have no story to tell. It really yeah. was, it really was quite, I'll never forget it. It was so ridiculous and fun and, <laughs> and all that, like the whole night for like one second on screen. And now for a quick bite, movie magic. Don't believe everything you see. Bill and Sookie sure looked like they were driving through the Louisiana night, but in reality, they were sat still in a controlled sound studio. It's really quite a simple effect. Picture this. A car in front of a green screen. Grips vibrate the car ever so slightly with two by fours wedged under the chassis. Mirrored lights mounted high above the car spin, creating the strobe of passing streetlights. And in post, footage of passing greenery will be added to the background. And voila. Movie magic. Now for our deep dive discussion, which is really going to go on for the whole run of the show because yeah. prejudice is a theme mm -hmm. and it's dealt with so beautifully and so layered by these writers they really begin in this episode to consciously weave in the larger message of this series. Yeah, I think that's right. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, we're talking about vampires as a metaphor for a persecuted or feared minority. Yeah. Um, but, you know, racism and sexism and homophobia are all literally always present in this story. And uh, I, I love that we have so many different characters that can speak to that. Yeah. Um, and so we'll we'll be having lots of different actors and writers on to talk about their experience uh, telling those different stories. Yeah. What that means to them. This episode, they've got some very, a few, a really direct lines mm. about being that um, minority that isn't understood. Mm -hmm. You know, when Bill is pulled over in the car. Yep. You know, that's a, that's. Well, I guess they're already stopped, but the cop comes up to them and is immediately yeah. suspicious and also treats Sookie with disrespect. I do not take kindly to you shining your light in the eyes of my female companion. And as I have more than 100 years on you, I do not take kindly to you calling me son. So the next time you pull somebody over on suspicion of being a vampire... You better pray to God that you're wrong. Mm. Stephen, really, whew, that's a it's an intense know. moment on the Isn't show. It? But you know, it's there's something about moment. giving voice to prejudice, but also to your own power. You know, yes. he's saying, you know, do it at your own peril, which is yes. you know such a an, a complex uh, conversation to have. I think. Yeah, that really that that line really moves me. And I think it is because he does have power. Yeah. Right? And so many in that situation don't. Yeah. We also have Sookie and Sam having a, you know, pretty, you know, on the surface conversation about separate but equal. 
and and you know even you know Sam who purportedly supports vampire rights uh, doesn't want to have to mix with them and so you know that has historical implications of course as well um, yeah. and so yeah you know I think the the writers are really trying now to really um, you know, s- step up and 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 ask the audience to go on. You know, not only the fun, romantic, silly journey of this show, but also mm-hmm. really ponder some of these deeper questions. These things that keep us separate uh, in mm-hmm. society, and that that really, I think, all of us are looking to be more together. Yes, yes, it, it, yeah. And Sam just says it so plainly. You know, it's mm-hmm. fine. They can have more, but we should not mix. Yeah, it's pretty interesting because it is again that fear of the other. Yeah. The unknown other when the show has been very clear about well humans have killed how yep. many people? Yep. Compared to vampires and women. Yes. Um, so with right? the death of Dawn and Maudette, especially, you know, with people thinking it's potentially vampires. Yeah. Uh, even Arlene. And again, you know, Sam and Arlene are people who we've met and believe to be good people that we like. And yet they are holding these very prejudicial points of view. And I think that's also important to say that yeah. we are all things just because you vote for the Vampire Rights Amendment does not mean that you are fully open hearted person yet. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, Arlene mentions <laughs> about how, in a way, Dawn had it coming. If she hadn't yes. gone to those vampire bars, maybe she wouldn't have died. And so we're, we have a lot of sexism running through this episode as well. Yeah, you made a good point before we were recording about how the women are being blamed, but mm-hmm. Jason isn't for the promiscuity. Yeah. There's not that same sort of, uh, uh, no one would ever say Jason deserves to die or deserves to suffer for his promiscuity. If anything, he's sort of admired for it, but these women are. And it's so telling that when Suki starts listening into everyone's thoughts, even though it's the women that are being shamed, it's the men that are all having these highly sexual thoughts about Dawn after her death. And right. it is really only Hoyt who's thinking kind things of her and, and missing her. Um, so yeah, yes. it's, it's, it's a really interesting way to sort of paint that on the table. And even Bill himself in, in the car as they're driving to Fantasia, you know, he calls Suki vampire bait. You look like vampire bait. What's that supposed to mean? You know, she's dressed up to go out and, you know, in in his little subtle way, he's he's missing that by calling her that, he's placing the blame on her for any attention she may receive. The show is so good at that because I'm right now thinking about all the different double standards that I have in my own thinking mm. that are unexamined. Yeah. And you know, I was raised by two people from a generation that it was on the female to have asked for uninvited, right. really, attention because of how one dressed or what have you. So the show handles all of this so well. And it's this is like we said, this is just the beginning. These are ongoing themes and we will have people on who are, uh, you know, more intimately um experienced in these areas to, to sort of talk about it and, and why they wrote it, how they felt playing it and where yep. we go from here. Yeah. I look forward to that. Yeah. 
And now to talk about those fabulous sets. There's really no yes. way to segue, Deb. So I just, it's, I feel like a newscaster now segueing to the, the fun Well, part. you know, we need a backdrop for all of these storylines, whether they are complex social issues or they are, uh, you know, Jason getting his ding dong drain. Uh, so <laughs> we're going to go uh, talk to Suzuki Ingerslev now. Uh, she's going to tell us all about the fang shui of designing a vampire show. Oh, dear. Oh, oh dear. Dear. What is I'm happened? giving Michael Lehman a run for his money. <laughs> but I'm so excited. I mean, this is yeah. just, she has so much to say and so yeah. much experience. You're going to love it. She's incredible. So excited. Hi, Suzuki. Thank you so much for sitting with us today. I'm excited to see you guys. Yeah. Oh, so good to see you. Yeah. So nice to have a catch up. And, and this has been one of the really wonderful things about doing this podcast is sitting down with people we haven't spoken to in so long. When I, you know, you think about uh, set design, production design, art direction. So, mm-hmm. you know, how do all of these different jobs collaborate with one another with you to sort of create what we finally see on the screen? Yes. I feel like um, for us, when we get a script, I pretty much work with the directors and the producers and the creators of the show, like the Ellen Balls, and be like, hey, these are my ideas. When I read the script, is this what you're thinking? So I try to get everybody on the same page, which is so important. I can't tell you, like, as you guys probably know, doing anything visual, right? Mm -hmm. There's a hundred ways of thinking about Mm -hmm. it. Like when you act, there's a different way of portraying each character. And so I try to get into their heads and try to put it on paper and get some kind of, I don't know, approval before I even start the process. How do you do do that? Is that a vision board? Is that a, yeah. Yes, absolutely. I've done like a lot of vision boards and I actually try to do like little renderings, even though like I don't I'm not like an illustrator, but at least in Photoshop, I can portray what I'm thinking. And I have to say a lot of the time my sets actually end up looking like these little renderings. It's pretty funny. Okay. And then it gives everybody kind of like the decorator and the painters and construction kind of the concept that we're leaning towards. And it really helps like um, the directors, you know, kind of start visioning. And even the actors, like the biggest compliment I've ever got on True Blood is when you guys say, oh, my God, this set helps me act like it feels real. Like Sam said that about Merlots, you know, he's like with all the little details in there and the the rotting away of the floor and the the coasters shellacked into the bar top. You know, he said, this really helps me. This feels like a real space. So that's what I'm trying to achieve. So then once I get that organized um, and we have approval to start building I include the art director and the set designer. I'll do little drawings of like floor plans and elevations. I pass it on to the set designer. And then they start, we start laying out, you know, what wall's wild, how big is the space, how big is the set going to be overall. I was going to ask how much, you know, designing for, you know, a house that someone's going to live in versus designing for a set on Mm -hmm. stage where things have to fly out and you have to be able to put a light on the ceiling, you know? So yeah. Uh, you know, was that a tricky thing to learn or? Yeah, it actually is. And it's still a tricky thing. Like every set is different. Like sometimes you work with a director of photography and he doesn't want any of the walls to wild. And you're like, what? But I built them all. Like I've thought this all through and it needs to wild. And they're like, no, we're not going to wild anything. And I'm like, okay. You know, I never knew that was the phrase till this very second. The walls are movable. They come in and out. So, right. That's most, I don't know that some of know, them, yeah. <laughs> people really think about that, but yeah. it's it's quite incredible. These sets come apart for us for the camera to fit, and 
I didn't know it was called wild. <laughs> yeah, we try to make it as simple as possible. Like, you know, I try to put it um, in a niche. Let's say you have a built out niche and then the wall, that's the back wall where you can hide the seams, pulls out and then that way they have room to get the camera back mm. there and then you can get wider shots as opposed to trying to squeeze an entire camera crew into a set right, right. and see if they can get a wide shot. So that usually helps people out a lot. And we write on the back of the walls mm-hmm. wild everywhere so that the grips know there's screws. We even circle the screws like this wall comes oh, wow. out. Okay. Don't pull it apart and break <laughs> it. Just unscrew it and then pull it out. Right, because it's a different crew that's removing the wall than the ones who built it. Yeah. That's correct. So we try to make it, you know, childproof. Right. I have more questions <laughs> about that, but continue. Um, so you're working with the set designer. Okay. Yeah, so we, we work with the set designer. We figure out the floor plan. We figure out what wilds. And working with Michael Lehman one time, he said, you know, it's great. And Scott Winant too. They're like, you always know where the sweet spot in your sets are. You can just get that right angle <sighs> and know exactly where you're supposed to film. And I'm like, that's What good. a great compliment. So, yeah. It really is. And so after I do that, then we start picking the finishes, the colors. I am, you know, construction gets the working drawings. They start building. And then I'll work with the decorator and we'll sit down and try to figure out with Alan Ball and everybody else, like, what is this character about? What is Pam collecting? You know, all that kind of stuff. Like, you know, Sookie and Bill, like, what are their living spaces, right? Bill's an old vampire. Does he have antiques and old things right. in there? Suki, her grandmother lived there, so it really shouldn't be her house. It's more her grandmother's house. Right. So she lived during the Depression, so she wouldn't throw out a lot of stuff. They keep things. You know, right. everything was, if it wasn't broken, you don't like buy a new right, one. Right, so right. trying to develop characters, you know, before we, you know, go too far and then get approval on that. And then once the decorator starts filling it in and building it, we, um, involve the crew and lighting and and try to get everybody to figure out how they're going to light the set because that's just as important. Yeah. What I imagine right. obviously that's a combination between what the director of photography is going to do, but also practical lights, sconces on the walls, things that you have control over. And I think that's what's really become a big thing is like before, you know, they used to light sets from the ceiling mm-hmm. and now they're kind of just using practical mm-hmm. lights. So actually the decorator and us um, have become very involved in the lighting And so I try to build in as much lighting as I can, and I try to control it a little bit. Like when I did the Vampire Headquarters, we built in all that lighting so that we would know, like, you know, with the water and everything, the waterways were all lit up. That way we kind of can control it because I hate when it looks fake. I mean, I just, yeah. Yeah. Deb, did you have, you said you had somewhere to go because I have a thousand places to go. Related to all of that, um, you know, I think about things like, Again, designing a set or, or a space specifically to be filmed in. And obviously you're taking into account wild walls and where to put lights and things like that. But I always think of Merlots and the genius of Merlots being that roundabout that you can take a camera in a complete circle mm-hmm. around that set. And the number of times that directors utilize that with steady cam or tracking shots, oneers. And again, I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, are you thinking about that? right from the beginning and how to give directors great angles or great movement? Or is that sort of, you know, come from their inspiration off of what you've created? 
That's a great question. And yes, I always yeah. think about that. Ever since the invention of like steady yeah, cam, right? I have to tell you, every set I do now, I think about that because I always did those long walk and talks on like West <laughs> yes. Wing down those hallways. And yes. every director wants that yes. now because they always want movement in all the shots. So when we did Merlots, I thought, how can I connect all this? Uh, how can they follow them through, go into the kitchen? Because I felt like Lafayette was such a, a part of that set as well. And he was always in the back. And you knew that they were going to always want interaction between the, the front and the back of Merlots. So we always design that in. And then every director that comes on, no matter how many years you've been doing the show, wants something new on yeah. the set. And it's really hard. It's like, okay, the set's been shot like, <laughs> I don't know, 80 times. But yeah, try to go find that interesting shot that nobody's done yet. Uh, so I try to keep it as flexible as possible because I know that they do get bored when sets have been around for a long time. Well, that's curious then. So a, a new director coming on to shoot a set that you've made possibly seven years ago. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. How much are you continuing to update oh, the year after year after year? I mean, obviously, like when Bill's house went from being decrepit to being fancy, that's a big update. But just, you know, it's the smaller things are just, a, like you said, a, a new director wanting a new angle. Are you still involved at that point and, and helping to make that happen? You know, usually on a permanent set that we shoot all the time and becomes like a staple of a show, we don't upgrade too okay. much. They have to kind of like learn to live right. with it. And <laughs> right. and I think audiences appreciate yeah. that. Like, you know, when you mm-hmm. do a lot of locations and sets, people like to go back to the same place because they feel comfortable. They're like, if you ever watch a show and there's like way too many like sets in it, mm-hmm. you just get like you lose interest. It's too choppy. Mm-hmm. But when you go back to your favorites, you know, like some of the best shows have been written Cheers. in like one or two sets. I got it. Yeah, cheers, cheers. Right? it's just crazy. It was like two rooms. Two rooms. Sometimes they went two to her rooms, house. But <laughs> right. Yeah. Season eight. And then you feel comfortable, right? Yeah. You're very happy being yeah. there. You see Merlots, you know Merlots. It's not a big surprise. And and that, you know, sometimes like when you're you're shooting sets, like a director will be like, Oh, I want to add this, but it's a direct pickup from the previous mm. episode. And you always have that little battle of like okay, no, the vending machine is not going to go in the police station because we just shot it like one episode ago and right. we just saw yeah. it. Right. Even though that was six weeks ago shooting for us, it's <laughs> one second for the audience. Yeah, One second, right? Yeah. I know. And they always like, well, I want a vending machine. I'm like, mm, not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so now a lot of sets are, of course, you know, Fantasia was right. an actual bar that we went to. So you have to deal with On your website, it's incredible to see the transformation between a location that you find. Now, I don't know. I just picture you driving around L.A., knocking on doors and combing (laughs) two hours outside of L.A. How do you find these locations? And the transformations in them are so extraordinary. And again, you must be looking at a whole bunch of things. Can we shoot in this? Can trucks park outside? How much time do I have to transform it? Yeah, you got that right. <laughs> so luckily we have a locations department uh-huh. and they help us. So they'll go out and they'll they'll know of some places or some places are registered on film sites that you can film yeah. in. This particular bar in Long Beach, somebody had known about and they went down there to scout it. And I saw the pictures and Alan saw the pictures. I mean, we give them direction. We were like, we don't want this to be like in the middle of nowhere or some mm-hmm. creepy restaurant. Right. Alan Ball thought it would be really funny to be in the middle of a mall, like a a strip mall. And that's how we started looking for this club. And somebody said, there's this place, you know, in Long Beach that has, you know, a bar in the middle of a strip mall. Oh, my God, we have to see it. Isn't it called Alex's Bar? 
It's called Alex's Bar so in Long funny. Beach. Pretty and perfect. we loved it. We thought it was so great. And it had, you know, already great bones. Like when I try to find locations, I at least want to find some great bones in there yes. that we're not redoing an entire like place. So this was already black with the red mm-hmm. and the, the, the leather bar mm-hmm. and all that stuff. And and then we brought in our own decorations and that stuff, which isn't, you know, which is pretty normal for us. And we really wanted to make it special. So we did some research and we saw a lot of like velvet paintings. And we're oh, like, oh yes. my God, we've <laughs> got to do velvet paintings. Yes. So that's how we did all those crazy ones in yeah. there. I have one of them. I have the one. Do you? Yes, a bush <laughs> biting oh the Statue of Liberty. Oh my God, that's the best one. It's great. <laughs> you know what? We called, we saw that um, not as a velvet painting. It was on the Colbert Report oh. or one of those shows. And we contacted them because we have to clear everything. We can't just steal it. And we said to them, oh my God, can we pay you some money to use that? We want to make it into a velvet <laughs> painting. And they were like, just take it. You oh, can have it. You're kidding. And Thank so you, we did Colbert it. No. Rapport. Yeah. <laughs> I know. And so we did this kind of um, velvet painting of it all. And we found this, like, I think he's in prison. <laughs> this guy who from prison paints like velvet painting. Wow. I kid you not. How and he perfect. painted some of those. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Yeah, because there was a Clinton one. Uh-huh. And there's a Clinton one. And then one of our key grips had all those tattoos. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. we did him. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I can't remember what some of the other ones were, but they, oh, Maggie, our little, our um, art department coordinator, we did one of her <laughs> and it just, it was turned out so great and so funny. So we loved incorporating all that weird stuff onto the walls. And the interesting thing was, um, I think it was like four season, our painter, Billy Bud, um, had throat cancer and he was going through mm-hmm. chemo and he had one of those masks mm-hmm. that you have. So when he finished and he was clear and, you know, everything was good, we put that on the wall. And I have to say, that was probably the scariest thing that we've ever seen on the wall. <laughs> Just seeing that like oh, face mask. We're like, I oh my God. I didn't even know that. Yeah, I have to look back. When we yeah. start watching those episodes, I'll keep an eye out for it. So even someplace like the Compton House, where they had a, a real exterior that you shot in in Louisiana, and then you built an interior to match. So I'm curious. I mean, eventually we built an exterior as well. But when you're matching an existing place, you know, how much do I mean, you have to match windows and doors and ceiling heights and things? How, how much are you able to sort of fudge for what you need versus, you know, sticking to the authenticity? Is that a, a challenge? You know, it isn't. As oh. long as I get the location ahead of time, yeah. that's what I always ask. I, when I start a show, like on the show I'm on now, I want the house first mm. and then I have the exterior and then I understand the layout of the floor plan. And then once I have the layout and just build the facade of like, let's say Bill's yeah. house, you know, there's the front door and the two rooms on the side. I could do whatever I want on the inside yeah. because you'll never see the inside of the actual location. So Bill's house had nothing to do with the actual right, house. Right. The stairs actually went the opposite direction. Oh, wow. It was all, it was completely different. But I remember being down, it was in Shreveport, that yeah. house. And I said to, um, um, the producers at the time, we should really measure this house because the scene that we're doing here with Suki masturbating on the steps in, in a conservative town, we're not going to come back. They're never going to let us back. <laughs> and sure enough, the set was pulled from yep. us. They didn't want to see us again. Oh, really? And they had all the measurements. So at least, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So I could build the facade. That's why we ended up building it. I knew that there was yeah. no way that they would Is that after they watched it or after they watched you film? I don't think they watched yeah. this film. After I think it was it after out. we watched it. 
if they came out that they saw all that. And we just knew that that was just going to be the case. I mean, everybody goes, oh, it would have been easier if you've shot this whole thing in Louisiana. And I'm like, no, it would not have been as hard as it was to make LA into Louisiana with all the Spanish moss and the greenery. I said it would have been much harder to film in Louisiana because they really didn't want us a lot of places. We lost like three locations because they said they don't believe in vampires. And they were very religious, so it would have been much harder. And I'm happy that we did it in LA. Yes. Oh, my gosh. That's so funny. They don't believe. I know. I was going to say, we don't believe in vampires either. But it's like, well, it is a fictional show. (laughs) So I do have a question about Compton House because we were there. Yeah. So, you know, because that's where I spent most of my time, really, out of most of the sets. So while we had, like, like when we needed it, Bill's bedroom or my bedroom or things like that, it really was that foyer in those two rooms were sort of Bill's house. And I'm curious, when you're designing that kind of a space, do you do the whole house? Do you know what's behind the door, behind the stairs? Or is that a waste of time? Or like, what does Bill's kitchen look like? Do we care? Like, you know, I don't know. I'm just curious. Obviously, he's not using it. <laughs> that, but uh, no, obviously. <laughs> but it's there, I assume. But it's there. And I have to tell you, coming from an architecture background, yeah. I have to know what the house I looks like. I love that. I love that. So I do. I sit there and I figure it out. I'm like, okay, this door would go to the kitchen. This door would be like a servant's entrance. This would be the back stairs. Like, I have to have that all worked out in my head, even though you will never see it. And truth be told, if you're around for seven seasons like we were, I could see yeah. some writer, Bucky, hey, well, let's see Bill's kitchen. And then when I'd be like, well, where do we go for that? I have to yeah, know, right? So right. I always try to prepare for it, especially if I count on a show going on forever and it's a permanent set. It's so smart to have all that in your head. Yeah. Well, and similarly with the past of a space, I mean, you talked about, you know, Grand's house, you know, she was there during the 30s and what she would have kept. But I even look at like Bill's house and all of the history that it's had, the various owners that have had it between, you know, his parents and him. Um, And, you know, you mentioned like, would he have antiques? But is there also a tracking in your mind, you know, with story of who were those previous owners? What are the renovations that would have happened at different points? And, you know, how again, how much is it creative license and how much are you really detailed out the history of each of each location, each place? I think about that too, yeah. as you can imagine, okay. because it's such an old mansion that you got to do something interesting yeah. with it. And so when we did the decrepit version of it, um, some of that paper in there was like from like the 60s. Yeah, because someone So it's not Civil War it. paper. Yeah. Somebody would have lived there. And there was a mixture of stuff. I and that. But I do feel like in the South, people have a lot of antiques still. So I felt comfortable still using all yeah. that. And we didn't really have a lot of furniture in there in the beginning. Um, and then we actually, thank God I think about all that because we did that flashback where you remember he finds out we find out that he had a kid during the civil war who died of smallpox i think it was and so we um renovated one of the rooms and made it into like a civil war so we added the old papers and kind of the old kerosene lanterns and all that stuff and and showed it back in the heyday when he would have been having a kid so that was kind of fun to do and then you know when we get to him being the king of uh, louisiana (laughs) We really wanted to make it modern and interesting. And we used a lot of modern furniture and wallpapers in there and kind of like did a very contemporary version of actually what was happening in the current day, which was kind of fun to do. And that was like everybody's like one of people's favorite sets. Like they love that kind Uh, of it was just it turned out really beautifully. And I remember like looking for a desk for him. Yeah. Do you remember that big desk we had in there? Doesn't he have it? 
And I think Stephen has. He it. has it at his house. He has it in his guest yeah. house. I told him he had to take it because it was like I want to say it was like a ten to fifteen thousand dollar desk that I had found on the computer. I put it into my mock up, and I loved it so much. And everybody's like, "Oh, you can't get that desk." And I'm like, "So I wrote the company, and they were like, oh, we like True Blood, and we'll sell it to you for half the price.' Oh my god! So we got it for like five thousand dollars. The other problem was that it weighed like you know two tons." <laughs> And so I thought, you know what? I'm going to tell the crew it's that heavy, but I'll build skateboards for it. So if they ever have to get it out of the way for filming, we'll skateboard it out of there. And so that's how we got his desk in there because we couldn't find any big desks like that readily available. Wow. It was I was so happy to get that desk. So I'm so glad he has it. I think I do have memories of directors being like, oh, what if we moved it here and, and, and set, we'd be like, best you can do, try not to move the desk. <laughs> As you said, we learn so much about character up from their space. And as actors, we have almost no say in what that is. So all we can do is walk into a space, take in the information and let it affect the work that we've come prepared with. So it's always so gratifying to hear that someone like yourself thinks so deeply about that, that you really are considering Pam and Eric and what would they have done to this space or thinking about Gran because then when Lois Smith walks into her kitchen as Gran, right. some of that work, that work is there to support her, not fight against her. Um, no. And that's why yeah. we thought it was so funny when she had a cell phone. Do you remember that in yeah. the pilot? It was yeah. one of these old big ones with the antenna. Yeah. And we thought, oh, my God, that's so great. That would be what she would have in the yeah. house because she wouldn't have like a dial phone anymore. She's not that archaic. But how funny <laughs> is it that she had one of those, right? Yeah. So yeah. little details like that. And I remember saying, like, she's not a collector. Like, a lot of people are collectors. But, you know, if you come from that time period, you're not collecting. You're just living and having what you've had. And you got it handed down from generation yeah. to generation. And do you have, is it possible at all on True Blood to have a favorite set or moment like that big meat statue? Like is the, the, the stuff that you got to do is so crazy and deconstructing Grand's house, you know, when the Maynard moved in. Oh my and God, then, when the Maynard. Right. And then cleaning it up again and then yeah. putting it back again. There's so much. But my favorite set, I have to say there's probably two of them. Sure. Okay. Merlots, just because it reminds me of True Blood and all of you and everybody ended up there at some point, which yeah, is yeah. kind of great. And also the Vampire Headquarters. Yeah. It was huge. That was huge I and really fun been. to do and so different. Yeah. On that like ginormous a set. In fact, I remember that was massive. birds got into the soundstage and started nesting in <laughs> in the Vampire Authority's Really? Because it was as big as a freaking cathedral, right? I so had like, no idea that that oh, happened. Yeah. So there were times we were shooting. I remember specifically, I think Dennis O'Hare, you know, playing Vampire King Russell, yep. doing big, scary, like, I'm going to eat you all speeches. And we'd hear, tweet, 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 and we'd have oh to be God. like, everyone pause for the birds. Oh, I that think is eventually so funny. someone chased them out. But it, that's how really enormous this space was, that birds could get lost. In and they the, let me put water in it, too, yes, which right, was crazy. I thought I got so tired of building all these underground spaces because the water <laughs> table is so high in Louisiana. I'm like, that's why the graves are up high. Why am I right. building all these basements for everybody? Right, <laughs> and right. so I said, I'll build another basement if I can add water to it. Water to it. <laughs> it feels extraordinary to me that HBO built those homes. 
you know, and on Greer. like yeah. the foyer and the and the two rooms on each either side. So I always find it fascinating because viewers don't realize when Sookie walks up to the house, it's going to be, or Bill or whoever, me, it's going to be at Greer at two in the morning <laughs> and 19 <laughs> yeah. degrees. And then when they walk inside, it's a whole nother day. It's a yep. separate day on a separate shoot day. It's incredible. I mean, is that have you? Is that just huge HBO budget that they could just build these exterior homes? Well, you know, when you build um, sets, it's because they're long term. So if you think right. about Bill and Sookie's house, there was no way that there was going to be a neighborhood with that much property around it was going to want mm-hmm. us to come back week after week. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it costs a lot of money for us to redo things. Like it's never just mm-hmm. you go to this house and you shoot it. You know, we yeah. do a lot of work. So to go back and have to restore it, then come back again and redo it yeah. again, and just go back and forth, you want to have control over the neighborhood. And Greer Ranch, we were so lucky to find that place that they wanted us to build all these like facades there. That it became our own movie lot, and it's yeah. actually saved them a lot of money doing it that way. The The startup mm. was expensive, but we could control it. We could leave the lighting there. We knew what it was and we didn't have to deal with neighbors and pay them off. And, and, and not to mention you could burn people on the front lawn. We could burn people. Spread yep. blood all over the floor. Have them masturbate. <laughs> yes. Masturbate. I think the craziest thing there was that, you know, just having them always be naked, <laughs> whether they yeah. were shape-shifting or right. having sex. It's nude. like sometimes it went down to in the 30s in Greer Ranch. Oh, yeah. Oh, I so, remember. But yeah, I remember one time, yeah. I think it was Sam and maybe Luna that were having this. I can't remember, yep. but I had to yep. heat the grass. Yep. So we put these heating pads under the sod so that we could have, so they wouldn't freeze oh, to death. Sure. And then the oh. biggest thing was like trying not to see everybody's breath, right? Because yep. when it got really cold, vampires aren't breathing, so we yep. shouldn't be seeing their breath. And yes. in Louisiana, it's supposed to be 80 degrees at night. But that was the funny part. Just like always all the sex scenes. I always yeah. felt so bad for everybody. It's like absolutely <laughs> freezing out, but they got to take all their clothes off. And I'm like, oh, my God, there's not enough fun in the world. I'm so glad I'm art department. <laughs> and the biggest reward is what I said. When an actor walks into a set and feels like this is home, this feels real. And like most of like, again, like I had a friend that was working on, I think it was Planet of the Apes. And he was like, Oh, the crew down here says you shot the entire um, True Blood down here. And he goes, but I argue with them and I tell them no. He goes, I know her. I know her. She's in L.A. They shot the whole thing in L.A. And they're like, no, it was in Louisiana. He's like, no, I'm telling you. So that's a huge compliment that you're Asian fooling people that live in that area that you've yeah. shot the whole thing down there. And you know what L.A. looks yeah. like. It's not very green. No. no. Oh, my gosh. It is staggering that that was shot in L.A. Nothing is shot in LA. People still don't believe it. I know. I miss that. I'm going to tell you that. (laughs) I know. know. We were so lucky to be home. Yeah. And thank you for all those incredible locations and sets. Every Well, thank you for showing them off, you guys. Making (laughs) our job much easier. Freaking one of them, like, just, just made the show. Thank you very much. That was incredible to reconnect with her and hear her story. And she's so uh, detailed, yes. and all of her answers, she had a fascin- something fascinating to say 
and really like clear about her process and yeah. what's important to her. I just one of my favorite interviews. Yeah, her purpose, why she loves doing it. Yep. How incredible that we were in those sets and saying hi mm-hmm. to her multiple times a day and didn't know any of that. <laughs> I'm honored to know now, and I'm glad we get to share it with all of you. Yes, me too. Well, next week on Truest Blood, uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about community and personal history in True Blood. Yeah, we're going to have Alex Wu, the writer of the episode, that many um, have said cemented their love for the series this next episode. Yeah. It's, a, it's a real big one. It's, um, I don't want to ruin it too much but there's some <laughs> characters some main characters that we really fell in love with thanks to this writing yeah. Yeah. well thanks for listening Trubies. subscribe and follow wherever you listen to your podcast and we'll see you next week y'all come back now you hear Truest Blood is produced by Safe Haven for HBO Max. Executive producers are Janina Gavonkar, Kristen Bauer, and Deborah Ann Wool. Our producer is Gabrielle Gallon, and our audio producer is Christopher Wool. Our theme song was recorded just for this podcast by Jace Everett. Additional music was composed by Timo Chen. And remember, you can watch all of the original episodes of True Blood on HBO Max. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max.